Rice is wide to the far side. Wilson takes a snap. Three-man rush. Looking, scrambling. Now he's going to roll. Now he's going to stop and set. Back at the 40. He lets it fly to the end zone. Going to give his guys a chance. Going up. Coming down. Does he come down with it? Does Golden Tate have it? He's in the end zone. He has. Oh, my God. He's got it. What is up, Football Nation? Welcome to season number one, episode number 22 of the Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters Podcast. It is September 27, 2012. We're coming to you live from Buffalo, New York. we got a great show lined up for you today. I am the host, Steve Bennett, my co-host, Don Russ. What's up, Don? Hey, we're not exactly live. Not exactly, no. <laughs> uh Actually, we're not live at all, but it sounds so good. I mean, it's that whole Brent Musburger thing, you know, right? coming to you live from the Rose Bowl, you know, just, I wanted to say that. Yeah. yeah. Sounds better than coming to you recorded. Tapes, right. Yeah. So we got a great show today. We actually have a really great guest for you, Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams and the director of a new movie called Head Games, which focuses on CTE. And uh, the problem of concussion, not just in football, but in all of American sports, is going to be on to talk about his new movie, Head Games, as I mentioned. We're really looking forward to talking to Mr. James. First time we can say we've ever had someone on the podcast who has a film that has being preserved by Congress. Okay. Uh, in the national libraries and things like that. So Head Games is one of the films that is uh, being preserved due to its historical significance on film so we're really looking forward to having mr james on the show uh also uh we have wanted to remind you that last week we had jason lack and fora on the show uh jason had all kinds of great information still very relevant this week and if you want to check that out or any of our other shows you can search for the sportscasters at football nation or you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, or you can listen to it on podomatic.com as well. Uh, no new episode of the Sportscasters proper this week. I've been a little under the weather, so we postponed episode 33 of the Sportscasters proper to next week, but you can still look at our website, www.sports-casters.com, and we have interviews with uh, Lee Jenkins, Ben Ryder, and Roy McGregor from season two, episode 32 at the top. Uh, for the sportscasters proper. So, we got three things. We got Steve James. We got an email from a listener from Buffalo today for Don. Ooh. And we have one last thing. So, before we can do any of that, we have to get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, the first thing this week, as we've done in every week since the regular season started, is just the week recap. Yeah, week three. The week of the overtime. Yeah, no kidding. There was like f three or four going on at the same time. Yeah, I haven't seen that many overtime games in a while. And just wild finishes in general. I think so many games, I mean, the Colts kick a field goal with 37 seconds left. So you think for sure that Andrew Luck is going to get his second win against the Jaguars. And the Jaguars are going to fall to 0-3. And, and then Blaine Gabbert, who up to that point was 9 for 20 with under 100 yards passing, Throws an 80-yard touchdown pass to Cecil Shorts. So a really uh, incredible and wacky finish in that game. Also, you had the Saints, who had a 24-6 lead at home in the third quarter and an absolute must-win, blow the game and lose in overtime to the Chiefs behind Jamal Charles's 233 yards rushing. 
Uh, what else? We had the Lions get a Hail Mary. Two touchdowns in the last, I think, minute and a half of the game uh, to, to tie. tie. Yep. And then they force overtime. And with the new rules, they ended up having some kind of miscommunication. And instead of tying the game, they went for it on fourth down and got stuffed and lost the game. Yeah, apparently what that was is they were going to go out there on fourth down and try to draw the other team offside, which I always hate anyway. If you're going to go out there, just run a play. And the center got that exchange wrong and snapped the ball. So some people thought maybe that was one of those uh, nonverbal communications between the center and the quarterback where he just kind of taps him and says, we got this, Yeah, just go. I'm just going to run behind you. There's nothing worse than giving up a 72-yard fumble for a touchdown with a minute and 16 seconds on the clock to go down 41-27, then to score a three-yard touchdown with 18 seconds left, then get the onside kick, and score another touchdown at the buzzer, and then lose the game. Yeah. And that's really tough. And then there was one other overtime game, the Jets and the Dolphins, and poor Joe Philbin uh, ices the kicker, and the kick gets blocked. Nice. Yep. And then when they kick again, he makes it, and the Jets end up going 2-1 and one instead of the Dolphins. And then that doesn't even talk about the craziest of crazy finishes on Monday Night Football, Don. Yeah, uh, our second thing this week, well, I mean, we can go right back to the Sunday night game, which we're going to talk about the refs here. It would be hard not to. Yeah, we'll get to that. That'll be our second thing. But uh, if you go to the Sunday night game, the story of the game really should have been Torrey Smith. Uh, Yes. His brother died, I believe, that morning. What a game he played. He played a great game, two touchdowns. 127 yards and and six six catches. catches. So he had a huge game to beat the Patriots and maybe what would be an upset, not a huge one, but big game for him would have been a real nice story, but the game uh, was really, it was one on a field goal. It was one on a the field goal. 27 yarder and by Justin Tucker, it, who didn't make it real obvious that it was good. The Patriots didn't think it was. And now we get into the whole thing. with Very the debatable. Yeah. yeah. The rule as stated on Monday or the broadcasters in the Sunday night football broadcast did a good job. They said, Anything over the uprights, all it has to do is part of the ball just has to touch part of the upright. Yeah, he said there's no doinks right. in infinity. So really, I mean, ideally, I guess you tell your kickers to kick everything high because then you would never – I mean, you give yourself maybe – I don't know how wide they are, but it's a, probably an extra six inches to a foot when you add them both together. But, uh, yeah, so the Patriots didn't like it. Belichick grabs a ref running off the field and – yeah, you got to find 50K for that. $50,000, yep. And then the Seahawks-Packers game, crazy game. Again, 24 calls, I think, made in that game with the refs. Seahawks win on a Hail Mary at the end of the game. Or did they? Which brings us to our second thing this week, if you don't have anything else, just on general. Football. No, I think I'm done in general. But Yeah, the refs kind of dominated the, the talk uh, week three. And... The Packers-Seahawks game. So the Packers are up 12-7. I mean, everyone's really seen this play right. out. Packers are up 12-7. It's the last play. Uh, Russell Wilson shows some nice footwork to buy himself some time, get out of the pocket. He throws a Hail Mary up for grabs. Golden Tate is really his only wide receiver there. Yep. Tate pushes down one of the... Shields, maybe? Yeah, I think it was Shields. Yep. Green Bay defenders pushes him down. Uh, the other... Packer defender. Jennings. Jennings goes up for the ball. Appears to catch it. Grabs it with two hands, pulls it into his body. And as he's coming down, Golden Tate gets part of his arm on the ball. One ref comes in looking like he's going to signal a touchback. The other ref comes in and signals a touchdown. No conference. They end up calling it a touchdown on the field. There is a review process. No one's really sure what they're reviewing. Ultimately, it was upheld, and basically the Packers are robbed. Yeah, and look, if you haven't heard already, the replacement refs have been replaced by the regular refs. They fixed the problem. Forced uh, a deal. Forced a deal. Tonight's game will be the first refed by the regular refs. And I thought before this even happened, Tuesday morning quarterback from ESPN and Mike Shope, who we had on our other podcast, a local Buffalo guy, I think both wrote really good articles, at least somewhat talking about the officials. Tuesday morning quarterback talks about how the regular officials 
make really just as many mistakes, maybe not quite as glaring as like Monday night, but the regular officials really do make a lot of mistakes too. Uh, and in the years past, because we didn't have the re- replacement refs to pin it on, we would beat up the regular refs. This isn't anything new. It's just that these are the replacement refs. The biggest issue is that these replacement refs have lost control. Yeah, they never had control. And in addition to that, I feel like the, these referees are being bullied into making calls by both the players. Well, Jim, Har- Jim Harbaugh bullied the ref on Sunday into giving him a challenge. He didn't wasn't right. allowed to challenge because he was out of timeouts. I didn't like seeing uh, Seattle's coach, Pete Carroll, Standing, standing there, next to the that, guy yeah. while Almost he made the touchdown him. call. Right. about He was like four feet away from the guy in Seattle in an enemy building in a place that would be angry if you changed that call. Now, I'm not saying that affected the call, but the old, the regular officials just wouldn't have had that. He wouldn't have been standing there. But uh, Tuesday morning quarterback does go on to say that, I mean, that's the biggest issue for me that they lost control. Not that they blew calls because you're going to see blown calls this weekend and then people will be crying for the replacement refs. So maybe not quite that far. So the new the refs are back with an eight-year deal. Uh, covers the 2012 to 2019 seasons. A uh, big issue in the de- debate between the refs and the owners was pensions. Uh, the pension plan will remain in place for current officials through the 2016 season or until the official earns 20 years of service. Uh, the defined benefit program will then be frozen. Uh, retirement benefits will be provided for new hires and for all officials beginning in 2017 through a defined contribution agreement, which will have two elements. An annual league contribution may be on behalf of each game official that will begin with an average of more than 18000 per official and increase to more than 23000 per official in 2019, and a partial, partial match of any additional contribution that an official makes to his 401k account. Also, game officials' compensation will increase from an average of 149000 a year in 2011 all the way to 2005, 205000 by 2019. Uh, and beginning next season, the NFL will have the option of hiring a number of officials on a full-time basis to, to work year-round. And the NFL will have the option to retain additional officials for training and development purposes and may assign those additional officials to work NFL games. So that's the deal in a nutshell. Great. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be better. Like I said, the control thing was the biggest thing for me. The game's lasting forever. The just total amount of calls that were being made. Now, granted, uh, Mike Shope, I talked about his article too, goes on to talk about how there's just a lot of bad uh, rules in the NFL. It's too many that are left to interpretation. Like, why is it on Hail Mary's you almost never see pass interference called like you didn't that night? But... On the other plays, the replacement refs were felt the need to call it one way or the other almost every time. Uh, it's a very hard game to ref based on the complexity of the rules and the speed of the game. Right. And there's no way that you can ask people who have never done it before without any training of any kind to do it. Right. And I think that was Shope's point is partially that it's hard enough to call without I have these no, ambiguous rules. I have no beef with these guys. They did the best they could. Yeah. They were just overmatched and they had no chance. And then they got bullied and taken yep. advantage of by guys like Harbaugh and Belichick. It's and easy to Carol. it's easy to say stuff at home when you're watching a game, but I can't imagine calling a pass interference real time. And he's running down the sideline with watching these plays. He doesn't have the benefit of just watching from a TV and seeing the guy get his arm in there or not or grab or whatever. Ed Hockley is back. The regular (laughs) officials are back for better or for worse. But I don't think at least we don't have to worry about this again for at least nine years. All right. My last thing this week. uh, Steve mentioned off the top of the bat that we didn't do our regular podcast this week because of his illness and we usually do a segment on there called Five on Fantasy. So if you like fantasy stuff, be sure to check out our regular podcast. And we're going to try to do some more fantasy on this show as the season progresses. Sure, we'll mix it into the three yeah. things and with our guests and whatnot. But I'm going to actually use a stat I had uh, from the show that I won't end up using. One of the things Steve and I go back and forth when we're doing the show prep, we'll make like a, a list of things we're going to talk about on Five on Fantasy. And the one thing we had on there was the biggest surprise from the preseason that like you didn't see coming. 
And mine was just how much this so far has been the year of the tight end. Seven of the top ten players, seven of the top ten leading receivers in TDs are tight ends. That's Heath Miller, Vernon Davis, Tony Gonzalez, Martellus Bennett, Jimmy Graham, Kyle Rudolph, and Dante Rosario, who's kind of an oddball because he only has five catches and three TDs. Wow. So those other six guys are averaging over five catches a game for about 56 yards and a TD per game. Over 16 games, that's about 80 catches a year, 80 catches for the year, 896 yards and 16 TDs. Those numbers would all, minus the yardage, which Jimmy Graham and Gronkowski had, and even uh, Aaron Hernandez, I think, had more than the night that 900 yards last year other than the yarders those would all be number one fantasy tight end numbers and six guys are putting it up right now none of them which are rob gronkowski who is many people's number one overall tight end so the biggest surprise for me was i was very high on taking guys like gronkowski and jimmy graham in the second round because of the apparent advantage, advantage i thought you would have every week because the way it played out last year, if you had those guys and anybody else had anybody other than uh, the top three, I think you were getting you were starting their game with like a five point buffer, just because your tight end was going to be that much better than the other people's. But wow, it's not looking like that this year. No, I mean Tony Gonzalez has twenty one catches already and three touchdowns. Yep. I mean a guy totally off the radar like Dennis Pitta. Pitta yep. He has eighteen catches for one hundred eighty eight yards and two touchdowns already. So uh, and sleeper guys like Kyle Rudolph, like guy Martellus Bennett, guys you were probably drafting as your backup tight end if your league required you to draft a backup tight end are among the lead leaders this year. I do think this comes back to the average a little bit, but probably not as much as I would have liked based on my draft strategy of taking a tight end early. I, I think teams probably looked at New England last year and how well they did with their two tight ends and just – drafting tight ends that cause matchup problems. There's a guy in Cleveland, I think his name is Cameron, something like that. He wasn't a real highly drafted guy, but all the fantasy experts out there and talking heads are like, watch this guy because he's just a physical freak that presents, you can't guard, you can't cover him with a linebacker and he's too big to cover with like a corner or a safety. So Yeah, 10 players have three touchdowns or more in the NFL and seven of them are tight ends. Yep. Unbelievable. All right, my uh, third story for this week, kind of an interesting thing. We all know that, unfortunately, Darrell Rivas was lost for the Jets last week. Yeah, uh, Non-contact injury, turf monster got him, torn ACL. As soon as I saw that, I turned to my brother who was watching me. I said, he was, that's non-contact. Those are the worst. Yep. Whenever you see those, that's bad news. ACL down. So the Jets have a hole in the secondary, and an interesting way Rex Ryan had to maybe fix that hole is running back from USC – Joe McKnight, who's maybe best known at this point for having some weights dropped on his neck and for throwing <laughs> up in the beginning of training camp, uh, was moved to defensive back. Rex got the idea because McKnight had played a lot of defensive back in high school. A uh, couple of really interesting quotes from McKnight about this whole thing. Rex walked into the room and said, I got traded. I got traded to the defense. <laughs> I was drafted as a running back. The way I look at it, the way I took it as I wasn't good enough to play running back. That's what I took it as. I don't know if that's the case or not. When they asked him about his work in high school and the secondary, he said, that does not help at all. It's been a while since I played cornerback. Maybe if I played quarterback in college four years, maybe cornerback in high school does not help right now. So... <laughs> I don't know. If I'm Joe McKnight, I'm thinking there's not exactly a great running back here. Yeah. If he looks around the room. And I guess that he's not getting the ball. I don't know anything about this from watching. I don't know who he was. Bilal Powell or whatever. I know this name because I'm a fantasy player. And I know that Sean Green hasn't blown anybody away. Joe McKnight hasn't exactly he's blown anybody away. He's had three carries all season. McKnight? Yes. He had one, he's had one carry in each game. One for three yards against the Bills. One for 12 yards against the Steelers, and one for minus one yard against the Dolphins. Yeah, so I don't the know. The point is, you're not going to be in the league long. I mean, he's been in the league since 2010. He's never had more than 189 yards rushing in a season, and he's never had more than 43 carries. So, this is an opportunity to be in this league long term. Yeah. Instead of complaining and pouting about it and saying how 
it doesn't make sense to you and whatever, try to make it a positive. Try to make it work for you. Go out there and bat some balls down. Pick a yeah, ball off. I, I agree with that. Uh, the Bills have a guy that's a perfect example of that in George Wilson, who was going to be like their sixth receiver on the team a few years ago, and they said, hey, you're a smart guy. Do you think you can play safety? And he picked it up, and he's actually their starting safety now, and he's a pretty effective one at that. But, man, if they finish 8-8 eight and eight this year, this is Rex Ryan's got to be gone, right? I mean, it's so tough because – I mean, your your number one cornerback goes down, so now your number one corner now he's is got that Cromartie. out a little bit. Number one, yeah, maybe. And your he, number one's Cromartie now. He's I, not the GM. How, Tannenbaum is. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's what he says: is I've got four corners behind this guy that aren't as aren't as good, or maybe he's just going to be like, I, I should back up. I mean, I'm sure McKnight's not going to be the number two corner. He's not going to take Cromartie's job. He's probably going to be like the dime corner or something like that. So maybe that's I was overblowing it a little bit, but. Aren't there guys in your roster that like you drafted to play corner that could be- are better suited to the dime or nickel well, corner? And- I don't know. I mean, Belichick's had a little bit of success with this with like Troy Brown. Troy Brown, and, yeah. Uh, you know, so maybe it's just something he was trying at practice. You know, it might not necessarily mean that Joe McKnight is a full time cornerback right. now. Yeah, I, I mean, I do agree. He's not exactly but blowing. My, up. my thought was just you got three carries. Give it a chance, man. Yeah. You're not making it right now, and this league is a running back. Yeah, I agree. And I got to guess it's your dream to stay there. I mean, Kyle Wilson will start now. You know, he'll be the guy that moves up right. because Revis is gone. It's Kyle Wilson. So the starters will be Kyle Wilson and Cromartie. And then they have Ellis Langster there. That's the guy who's famous from being in Buffalo for saying, lock him, lock him, lock him, lock him, oh, okay. lock him, lock him, that guy. Yeah. Uh, he's from West Virginia, so... Boy, the Jets love picking up former Bills retreads. Uh. But, yeah, they're thin there. They also have a guy named Isaiah Trufant. Okay. Uh, he's a 29-year-old with two years of NFL experience. So, yeah, they're very thin at that position at this point. Yeah, maybe I beat up Ryan a little bit too much. Maybe they're... Uh, they have four they... corners right now on the roster. Yeah. Going back real quick since we're done with this to what you said about non-contact injuries. Did you see the injury, I can't remember what game it was, where the guy fell down and just dropped the ball? Uh, yeah, it was the Saints game, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the Saints game, and it was uh, Peyton Hillis, I believe. What do you think about that play? Or no, Destin McCluster, maybe? No, oh, McCluster. Was it right. McCluster? Yeah, it was McCluster. What do you think about that call? I think that he was not down by contact. But there is a rule that you can give yourself But up. he wasn't. Yeah, that's the, a tough call because I've seen it. Deardorff ha- kept saying he's clearly giving himself up. No, he's just – it was all one process. He just caught the ball and happened to fall down on his arm. And when his arm started to break or hyperextend, he dropped the ball in pain. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough call because the same thing I ha- happened to Andre Johnson last year, I think. I remember him just – he took a non-contact injury that uh, took him out of the game. And he looked basically just threw the ball as he was falling down. And I don't know. That, that's a t- that's a gray area. Like I know he wasn't exactly taking a knee or anything like that, but that's that's tough that for a guy to do whatever he did to himself. When and- I was watching the McCluster play, so obviously I was rooting for it to be a fumble, but I just didn't see the giving up part. Right. I just seen it as one consecutive motion. But I guess that's again that's one of those ambiguous NFL rules. Like, what do you have to do to? show that you've given up like because if you're McCluster maybe you argue I threw the ball away because I was giving up you know what maybe I mean but if he doesn't throw the ball away he's not touched so he can stand up and run right yep I mean so I don't know that's that is tough I just know watching it live my gut instinct was wow that that's a fumble I thought so too but I mean you could see why the guy tough luck yep but yeah all right so that's it for three things and uh, I'm so pleased and really honored to be able to present to you an interview I did earlier with the director of Hoop Dreams and a new film called Head Games, Steve James.
Our guest today is from Hampton, Virginia, and is a graduate of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. He is an award-winning producer and director, best known for his 1994 documentary, Hoop Dreams. He has had five films premiere at the Sundance Films Festival, including his 2011 film, The Interrupters. He, he directed No Crossover, The Trial of Ellen Iverson for ESPN's critically acclaimed 30 for 30 series. He has won Peabody and Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Awards, and Hoop Dreams was named to the Library of Congress National Film Registry, signifying its endurance importance to the history of film. His new movie, or film, Head Gains, is a revealing documentary about the silent concussion crisis in American sports. A warm football nation and sportscasters welcome to one of the, our generation's most talented storytellers, Steve James. How are you doing today, Mr. James? Great. Thank Thanks you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this today. I guess, you know, looking back at your career and, and some of the things that you've done, some of the movies that you've spent years of your life working on, I guess the first question I have is, what was it that drew you to this project initially? Well, I think what drew me really was the fact that I, you know, had spent a lifetime around sports, and um, and I'm a... Uh, continue to be a sports fan. I, you know, read the sports pages. I follow uh, the Bears here in Chicago. You can't be a, a Chicagoan and not follow the Bears and uh, the Bulls and all that. And so, you know, um, if you're a sports fan at all or play sports, you can't help but have noticed the increased attention being paid to this issue. And I felt like um, it was an issue I wanted to know a good deal more about uh, than what I was reading in the papers. So when the opportunity came along to adapt Chris Nowinski's really great book, Head Games, into a documentary, I sort of leaped at the chance because I saw it as a chance to kind of tell the story of how this became a public health issue that Chris was at the center of, and then also, though, have it be a film that really tries to lay out what do we know and what do we don't know presently about um, the dangers of concussions, both short-term and long-term. I think one of the most common misconceptions in the public about this issue is that it's an NFL football issue. And I think that the film did a great job in highlighting all the different aspects of sports where concussions are prevalent and very dangerous. How important was it for you to get the point across in the film that this doesn't just happen to National Football League players? Yeah, no, it was extremely important. I'm really glad you said that because... Um, you know, the, the, the issue became uh, significant in the public mind uh, because of NFL football. I mean, Chris Nowinski took on the NFL, and rightly so, for a lot of reasons. But by, by bringing it to the public's attention in, you know, America's far and away most popular and revered sport, uh, you know, it, it also, unfortunately, has sort of, for a lot of people, been confined to that sport and to even just to the NFL, not even collegiate or, or high school or peewee football. And so one of the things we do, like you said in the film, is we move on to other sports and, and explore the impact of this issue in hockey, in soccer, particularly girls' soccer is what we focus on, uh, and then lower levels of football. Um, but, you know, on down to the peewee level. There's a tremendous amount of good interviews in the film, and there's some very candid speakers. Like, like uh, Keith Primo struck me as just being very candid and honest. But as I was watching these honest and candid people, I was wondering if you had to make many phone calls to find the honest and candid people. Were there people out there who you knew were struggling and you knew had a story to tell but just didn't feel comfortable doing it in front of the cameras? Yeah, we, we um, I wouldn't say that it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, that it took forever to find the people that we end up featuring in the movie. That, that would not be the case. But there were some other people that we reached out to, and it just wasn't going to work out for any number of reasons. It, it, in some cases, it was because um, they weren't sure, I think, that they wanted to sort of go public with what they're going through. Uh, in other cases, frankly, there were lawsuits in the works, and they were nervous about anything that they might do in terms of appearing in a documentary when they were trying to sort out their, their legal options. So I think what's great about Keith is, like you say, he's really candid and open, 
and um, and he cares about this issue, and he has, I think for me, the slam dunk of it in terms of wanting to feature him was finding out that he had two sons who were playing hockey as well and very competitive at hockey, and one of them had actually suffered a concussion himself that had kept him off the ice for six weeks. I have a younger brother who plays Division One college hockey at Yale right now, and just watching this movie, when I watched it through the first time, and I've watched it about three times now, when I was watching it through the first time, I just couldn't help but think about him and how I would feel if something happened to him out there. And it just, it became, to me, more of a family issue. And I wonder if for you, as you did this film, and you saw the impact that this can have, if maybe your mind changed a little bit from, you know, this is an issue that affects people who make the choice to play football to, or to play sports, to this is a a problem that impacts anyone in the family of someone who makes a decision to play sports. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and a lot of times it it can become a, a family decision about those sports. That was one of the things we certainly saw, you know, that that parents have such an important role to play in the decision making about these sports, both to play them to begin with and also if uh, you happen to have suffered concussions or multiple concussions whether continuing to play makes sense or not. And and families get invested in the athletic performances of their kids. You know, they get invested because they see the joy and uh, they see what, you know, what kids get from that and they remember what they got from participating in sports when they were younger. Um, but they, they also um, are faced with some very difficult decisions these days and they have to make these decisions without complete uh, information. We're a long way from really understanding just how widespread this, um, this crisis is and, and what the long-term effects are for a majority of people because we only today are really hearing about the stories of people who are, you know, who are the real victims, uh, the junior sales, the Dave Durasons, the Terry Longs, the people that, that have broken through into the public consciousness because they've come to a, a, you know, a really unfortunate and tragic end. There's a really powerful, powerful scene in the film when Chris Nowitzki is speaking to, I guess, a high school, and the trainer at the high school kind of gets up and confronts him and calls him out, basically, on his research, and Chris gets really frustrated and and walks away, and he he speaks after about how some parents followed him out to talk to him, and uh, he learns that the coach had sc- the football coach had scheduled mandatory weightlifting during the time of the seminar so none of the players could come and it just spoke to me of the denial that is obviously still out there in yeah, your absolutely. yeah in in your in your travels doing this film did you find a lot of denial like that well i i think that um we certainly saw some denial and and chris just recently was in los angeles uh, and spoke to something like 1100 coaches they, they canceled football practice and whatever other sports are going on out there in California at this time uh, for the day, and they had all these coaches in the Los Angeles School District come in and hear Chris do a 90-minute presentation. I think he began his presentation by asking of the 1,100 people in the room how many of them have had any uh, what they would call you know real con- training around the issue of concussions. Uh, up to now, and he says four people raise their hand, uh. and 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 it's not that coaches and trainers don't care. A lot of them, many of them, and I'd like to think most of them, especially now with the attention this issue's gotten, care about the issue. But the level of education is still woefully inadequate. And then there's there are those out there like the trainer that you you talk about in the scene of the film, who seem to be willfully ignorant on this issue and skeptical, you know, beyond what is reasonable and healthy for the kids that, that are going to be in his charge. The sportscasters and football nation are here with the great American director, Steve James, who has a very important film out called head games. You can uh, follow the film on Twitter. It's at head games film. 
They also have a Facebook set up, facebook.com slash headgamesthefilm. And the website is www.headgamesthefilm.com. The film is open in Los Angeles and New York. And it's also available on demand via iTunes, Amazon Video, uh, On Demand, DirecTV, and a bunch of different cable operators. I wanted to mention that in the middle, and I'll mention it in the end, too, because I think it's it's very important, and if you're a sports fan, it's worth the time to uh, track it down and, and find out more information. Um, the NFL, let's talk about their response. Uh, the film does a good job to kind of show how the NFL was a little bit slow to get on board, but as the film progresses, you see them more and more involved. As we speak right now, do you, how would you define the NFL's response to this? Would you say it's adequate? Would you say it's still inadequate? How would, how would you describe what the NFL's doing to try to educate their players and to limit cases of CSC in the future? Well, I would say that they've come a long way. They've come a long way from from denial and maybe uh, uh, active um, uh, efforts to diminish uh, concussions. You know, you learn in the film about uh, various studies that were conducted in the past uh, by, you know, um, and appeared in in reputable neurological publications. uh, And the studies were done by doctors who were, you know, uh, team doctors for NFL teams, and they, uh, you know, lo and behold, they concluded that concussions wasn't really a serious issue uh, for players. So, you know, when you look at the long history of the NFL on this issue, they've certainly come a long way. Um, uh, they're not all the way there yet, it doesn't seem to me, um, because I think that there's, you know, you, you, all you have to do is watch any football game, <laughs> pretty much any Sunday, and you will see collisions that uh, in light of this awareness around this issue, we're like, you know, should that be happening? Um, and it wasn't until late last year that they put um, uh, someone on the sideline whose who's, um, who's sole purpose is to try to identify players based on watching the game that need to be tested for a concussion. And there were so many incidences of players coming off staggering, literally staggering off the field, and no one was testing them for a concussion, and that's still going on in, in games this year. Hmm. You know, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, the CSC, all these things have uh, kind of kind of been exposed and, and brought out by things like your film, but I wonder if, if there's more. I know that Steve Gleason, who played for the New Orleans Saints, is suffering with Lou Gehrig's disease, and I think there's been a few other documented cases of NFL players who have gotten Lou Gehrig's disease at a very young age. From your findings and your research for this, do you think that Lou Gehrig's disease is going to be another big uh, topic for the NFL and things that can happen to players after their careers if they're not careful with their heads? Well, I'm not equipped, you know, scientifically, you know, to make that judgment. But I will say this. Um, I think one of the reasons, you know, this issue has sort of uh, been hidden away for so long is because the disease itself, CTE, um, can present itself in other diseases uh, and we just hadn't made uh, some of the links to them. You know, dementia is one of them. I mean, dementia is a disease all its own. It normally uh, affects people who are much older. And, of course, we've been discovering that it's affecting uh, athletes uh, at a, to a much higher degree than in the normal population at a younger age. The same with ALS. The same with um, Alzheimer's. Um, there's feeling now in, in the scientific community that, that Parkinson's, what has presented itself uh, as Parkinson's may clearly have links because some of what goes on with Parkinson's at the very least mimics what happens in the cases with CTE. You know, you look at someone like Muhammad Ali, uh, who is, you know, uh, unfortunately sort of the poster child for Parkinson's. Um, uh, A lot of people believe that if he donates his brain to science when he passes away, that they're going to find a lot of CTE that could then, contributing to those Parkinson's-like like symptoms. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of research going on right now to try to see some of the links between CTE and some of these other diseases that heretofore we've kind of tended to think of as being unrelated. 
This summer, Jane Levy wrote a really great piece for Grantland.com on Dr. Anne McKee. And one of the really interesting things about it is Jane talked to us on this show about how the doctor is a huge Packers fan and about how she questions to herself, how, with everything I know about this game, do I still love it so much? And I wonder, for you, having gone through this process of making this really powerful film, how have your opinions changed or stayed the, the same about the NFL and sports in general? Yeah, it's a tough one because I am a fan and, um, you know, but, but, but it's impossible for me now to just watch it and sort of just enjoy, uh, you know, the, the, the big hits and that in the past, uh, uh, you know, I enjoyed, I mean, you know, it, the weird thing about this, uh, you know, is and that you can make an analogy to it. It's sort of like for, you know, for decades, we've all enjoyed who, who, who love football, who have enjoyed the sort of violence of the sport and the big hits. And when do we, when do we come and really think about it on a deeper level? It's when someone is laid out on the field and maybe seriously injured. Then suddenly the, the sort of implications of this sport and what, what is possible in terms of the damage of the sport sort of comes crashing in. And I, I think most of us who are fans at those moments, we feel uh, an element of sort of guilt uh, in having enjoyed the sport um, and enjoyed those kind of hits. And I think increasingly for fans and for myself that that's the case, going to be the case in the NFL. I think people who follow football want to believe um, that, that the players on the field, for all the enjoyment they provide us, are not doing irreparable damage to themselves, and uh, at, at, at least to their brains. And, um, and I think that any knowledgeable fan these days, it's, it's harder and harder to watch the game and feel that way. You know, I was watching The Interrupters last night, and I thought of an incredible irony. And, and it might be a little bit of a stretch just because... I had watched the films so close to each other, but I thought of the problems of gangs and drugs and violence in the inner cities and how sport can be an incredible way to escape that, to join football at a young age and to stay off the streets. And I think there's even part of the film in Head Games where there's parents talking about how they bring their kids to football at a young age because otherwise the gangs will get them. And then I yeah. thought of this incredible irony where they have this safe haven, this way to escape potential violence on the street, yet there it is when they get on the field, this whole new animal of violence and danger that could potentially harm them and make their life shorter. Did you, did you ever consider that irony or is that kind of a stretch on my part? No, it's not a stretch at all. And that's, in fact, I feel like it's, uh, we, we may not have put it quite as strongly as you did, but I feel like it's something we, we really did try to make a point of in the film because we follow this peewee, um, we follow this peewee team that's sort of our, our narrative thread throughout the movie playing this game in which they're, uh, and it's a, and it's a, um, African American, um, you know, peewee team from the inner city of Chicago. And, uh, you know, as you said, you hear from the coach and from one of the parents about how this sport, football in particular, is absolutely vital to these kids and to the communities. And that it, it even, the coach says at one point, you know, the players on his team who come from different neighborhoods that typically don't get along, they come and they play on this team and they get along, they become teammates and friends and so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of social good and the stakes in those communities are even higher than they are in more suburban communities where the love of football is profound but the stakes aren't quite so high and so no I think it's absolutely um, it, it is an irony that uh, and and I think for the parents just like the uh, parent you hear from the film she talks about how um, you know, her kids get out of school, they go to football practice, and they, they, they come home, they do the homework, it keeps them off the streets, and, and she likes that about it. And, and from her point of view, 
this whole concussion thing is a bit bewildering to the point where she says, you know, I feel like all what you have to do is just, you know, hope for the best basically and pray <laughs> that, they, that they won't get hurt. I think that uh, Alan Schwartz makes an unbelievable point towards the end of the film where he says, I make decisions for my kids, you make decisions for your kids, and as long as they're within the law, that's the way to do it. And a lot of people have answered this million-dollar question over the last year as awareness has raised for this issue, and that is, would you allow your kids to play football? And I heard so many people on the film answer the question, but I didn't get to hear your opinion, and I'd love to have it. <laughs> yeah, well, we do this thing at the end of the film where some of the people that have been featured in the film, that question is put to, and some say basically yes, and some surprising people say no. Um, you know, the trainer for the University of Pennsylvania, uh, he has a young son, and when I put it to him, he can't bring himself yes. to answer, but, but he, you get the answer. And Isaiah Kazavinsky, who is a pro football player that we feature in the film, who suffered concussions, loved pro football, was profoundly important to him, says he, right now, with the way football is, he wouldn't feel comfortable putting his son on the field. So, yeah, no, I mean, I'm fortunate. My kids are older now. Um, they, don't, they didn't really participate in contact sports to any significant degree, so I feel lucky in that regard. If they were younger now and I was faced with that decision, it would be a tough one because I think what I would want to do is I'd want to do two things, is, is that I would want to, um, I'd want to inform them about what we do know right now about the dangers of the sport, and I would want to really look very closely at who they would be playing for, uh, what kind of program, what are the coaches' attitudes about this issue, how seriously are they taking this issue, and how are they dealing with it. Those are all the kind of things I think parents have to um, really consider nowadays um, because not everybody's enlightened. And that's if they're willing to consider letting their kid play. But I can I can also see arriving at that decision to say, you know what, we're I, I want you to pursue a different sport. I want you to get some of those values um, that come from sports participation, from sports that yes, you may suffer a concussion in them too. You, you know, we can't live our lives in a bubble free of the threat of concussions. But certain sports are far less likely to to result in concussion than others. All right, again, uh, the name of the film is Head Games. You can follow the film on Twitter, at Head Games Film. You can also find it on Facebook, facebook.com slash headgamesthefilm. The website is www.headgamesthefilm.com. It's open in theaters in Los Angeles and New York now. Uh, there will and, be a, and, and Boston and Chicago starting this, this, uh, tomorrow. Okay, Boston and Chicago tomorrow, and a, a wider release in October, correct? Yeah, and it's also available now as a video on demand. Right. I mean, one of the things that was really important to us with this film, and I've never done this with a film of mine that's had a theatrical release, which was we wanted to really make it available to families right away so that they didn't necessarily have to go to a movie theater to see it now, that, that they could watch it in the comfort of their living room with their kids and really, uh, you know, have it be something that they talk about. Yeah, and uh, iTunes is a great service for that. It's also available yeah. on Facebook, PlayStation 3, Xbox, Amazon Video On Demand, and also DirecTV and a bunch of different cable providers, including Time Warner, uh, so yeah. the film is probably somewhere really close to you if you want to watch it. Mr. James, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you before we let you go, it's great to have at Head Games film, but do you see in the future us having an at Steve James on Twitter? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't made the, the, the leap to Twitter. Yeah, but I, uh, you know, I am... Um, you know, I'm trying to be more up to date, but I haven't I haven't quite made the jump to Twitter yet. Okay, Sorry. well, that's all right. Hopefully we'll see you there soon, and thank you again very much for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate your interest in it and your great questions. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care.
All right, a very special shout-out and thank you to our good buddy, Zach Rosenfield, for giving us the opportunity to interview the great Steve James. Hope you guys enjoy that. want to apologize if it sounded a little bit echoey. We've kind of been battling technical difficulties all day here at Sportscasters headquarters, but we'll have everything kind of cleaned up and fixed by next week, so we do apologize if there was a little bit of an echo there or if it was a little bit distracting, but we'll have that all straightened out for next time. All right, uh, once again, don't forget you can email us anytime at thesportscasters at gmail.com. We've gotten a lot of good emails in. We're going to try to do at least one every week at the end of the show here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and at FBallNation. You can check out Season 2, Episode 32 of the Sportscasters featuring interviews with Lee Jenkins where he talks about smoking blunts with Snoop, <laughs> Snoop Dogg. Dog. Snoop Lion. No, that's not true. <laughs> uh, but he does talk about his interactions with, him, yeah. with Snoop Lion. Also, uh, Ben Ryder and Roy McGregor on the NHL Lockout. You can find that at www.sports-casters.com and on iTunes. And uh, don't forget, this podcast is available on Football Nation. It's also available on iTunes, and you can also listen to it on Podomatic by searching for the Sportscasters as you would on iTunes. So plenty of ways to find us. All right. Don, this email is addressed to you. I'm a little bit scared. All right. It says, The Bills cut loose Brian Mormon this weekend after a poor start to the season. Okay. Like you, I live in the Buffalo area and have been personally touched by the good work that Brian Mormon has done for Western New York. It is going to be hard for me to root for the Bills this weekend after their decision. I know football is a business, but to cut a guy after three weeks that has meant so much for over 10 years seems ridiculous. What are your thoughts and feelings on the Bills' decision to let Mormon go? Love the work. Joe, Cheektowaga, New York. All right. Um, I don't think Joe's going to like this, but let me start by saying I like Mormon too. For a while, he was easily the most likable player on the Bills, which speaks a lot to his likability and just the Bills' general unlikability from a fan standpoint. Uh, That said, he had a horrible punt. That got returned for a touchdown in the Jets game. His directional kicks have been terrible. I, I know it's three games. Maybe it's a bit rash. Uh, maybe the biggest effect this has is on Ryan Lindell's kicking because he was his holder. It, I can't get too worked up over a punter. I, I know what he did for the community. He was a cool guy. I remember watching him back on some sort of uh, – it wasn't a punt pass kick contest, but some Pro Bowl competition thing on ESPN where he was the one running the obstacle course. Like he was the only punter that did it. It was like what the wide receivers were doing, but and it was just cool to watch him do stuff like that. He was a great athlete in his prime. Yeah, I think he was a track very well or something. Very one of the greatest athletes to ever play the position of punter. I think. I, I mean, I guess to hedge a little bit here, we'll have to see. I guess if Ryan Lindell is off, if. Uh, I'll say this. This kid doesn't kick well. To help you a little bit. I worked in the nonprofit community in Western New York for a few years, and there was a Bills linebacker named Keith Ellison who did a lot of work for the organization that I worked for. Good stuff, nice stuff, stuff he didn't have to do. And he helped some of the kids in the community that I cared about. And because of that, I wanted him to be a good linebacker. But the reality was yeah, he, wasn't. he wasn't a good linebacker. He, he was a guy that the Bills every year kind of tried to replace and just couldn't. It spoke right. more to their depth at linebacker than it did to Keith Ellison's skill at linebacker. And I think a lot of Joe's passion, and he says right in the, in, in the email, that he He's was personally, personally right. touched by the good work that Brian Mormon did. And that can mean a lot of things. Joe could have had a sick son that Brian Mormon visited, visited right. and, and it might have changed their lives. And when things like that happen, it's hard to accept and swallow this. Sure. It's a part of this business of sports that hurts fans. Yeah. Uh, so I get it, but... I, I'm bummed, I guess, that Brian Mormon, the person, is probably not going to be in Buffalo much longer, at least not during his professional career. But Brian Mormon, the punter... Yeah. I'm not going to lose sleep over changing punters. Well, thank you, Joe, for emailing that. Uh, very interesting. And I, I, I specifically held that from Don because I wanted him to just respond kind of as it. I, I was surprised by the general Twitter and Facebook buzz about the Mormon move. It was surprising, but 
I think I said on Twitter or Facebook, what was more surprising to me was the the backlash of cutting a punter or releasing a punter. I guess this guy touched a lot of people in our community. And, and good. I mean, that speaks to him as a man. So good for him. And you know what? Jim Kelly never wanted to come here, right? Yeah. He played two years in the in the uh, USFL. <laughs> USFL, and now he's never left. Right. So hopefully Brian Mormon will stick around yeah, when he's done punting. Do his if work. his career's over, hopefully he'll stick around and do that good work. And just because he's not a current Bill, he's kind of like Rob Ray, you sure. know, in Buffalo, another guy who wasn't a great hockey player, but. After his career, he's chosen to stick around, and I think he still has an impact on the community. Sure. So I'd say to Joe, don't worry. He's, Brian still is probably going to continue to do good work here. All right, so that brings us to one last thing. It's the third week we've been doing this. We're really excited about it. We think it's the perfect way to end the show. We know it's not a grand idea that we created <laughs> or anything <laughs> like that. It's not exactly original. Not exactly original, but it feels like a great way to end. Uh, so, Don? One last thing for today. All right, one more thing. I'm going to stick with the Bills because it's what I know best. Uh, the Bills, from an outsider's point of view, before the season started, looked like they had a pretty easy schedule. They still do, but you're 2-1 right now. You're going to go into a period of six games that you probably won't be favored in two of them. You'll, New England, You'll probably San only be favored in one is my point. I said that kind of weird. New England, San Francisco, Arizona, Tennessee, Houston, New, New England. England. Right. right. Which makes this game... Uh, after two straight losses by New England, which is not something I'm excited about going into, but it makes it all that more important. This is the reason you sign guys like Mark Anderson and you sign guys like Mario Williams because you took a page out of the New York Giants blueprint that to beat Brady, you beat him with four. Uh, You get pressure on him with four because really coming out of this stretch, you're going to need to go two and four or three and three. And this might be one of your best chances. As crazy as it is to say, a New England game might be one of your best chances. You're going to be an underdog, probably a a decent underdog in San Francisco, unless you beat New England this week, and then all this will change. You're probably going to be an underdog in Arizona now, too, who doesn't look like anything of a pushover. Tennessee has got to be a win. Then you play at Houston, which you might be a big underdog in. And then at New England, which won't. you'll be an underdog no matter what happens from here on out. And then they might be favored the rest of the way. Right. That's why all you've got to do is go two and four, three and three. But to go even two and four, you've got to win a game like this one. And that's, like I said, that's why you got these guys to beat New England. So it's a tough place to be in. I mean, you are home at least. I don't. Nobody wants to play New England after two straight losses. But you can go to three and one, send New England to one and three, be in control of your destiny after these six tough games, win out and have your best shot at a playoff since. God knows when. I'm, I have a little brother who probably doesn't remember why. 12 years they've missed Well, it's 12 the years, right. Yeah. But, I mean, most people, a lot of their fans now probably don't remember it. All right. One last thing for me today. It's a really interesting weekend for the NFC North. Uh, the 2-1 Vikings play the 1-2 Lions, who are really lucky to be 1-2. You remember Matthew Stafford had to lead the Vikings down the field on opening day to beat the Rams. And if it wasn't for that, the Lions would be 0-3 right yeah. now. But think of it like this, Lions and Lions fans. If you beat the Vikings at home like you're favored to do, Detroit's a five-point favorite. If you could beat the Vikings at home, you'll be 2-2. Two and two. The Vikings will be 2-2. Two and two. You'll have the win. If the Cowboys can beat the Bears on Monday night, which they're to favored yep. to do by four points, the Bears would also be 2-2. Two and two. So the Lions, who could have easily been 0-3, can suddenly be 2-2 two and two in a three-way tie for their division, regardless of what the 1-2 and two Packers... Well, if the 1-2 and two Packers beat the 0-3 Saints, then everyone in that division will be 2-2, two and two, and you'll be able to put this bad start behind you, go into a bye week next week, get healthy, and still be able to be the team that the Lions wanted to be after their great season last year. Yeah, if you flip so that around... I think ar- it's a huge week for the Lions, but if you flip it around and the Vikings win... Suddenly, the Vikings are 3-1. and one. Yep. They have a win over the Lions. The Packers are no better than 2-2. Two and two, And at worst, you're tied with the 3-1 and one Bears. Or if, like, you know, the Bears lose to the Cowboys, then the Vikings would be all alone in first place after four weeks. And who would have thought that? So a very interesting weekend in the world of the NFC North. 
spend my days with a woman unkind, smoke my stuff and drink.